This is absolutely remarkable. The great Kabir Bedi has written an autobiography. It's called Stories, I Must Tell, The Emotional Life of an Actor. Really overwhelming at points, but let me not deter you from picking it up, thinking it's all heavy. It's lots of fun along the way. And Kabir's trademark humor and looking at the lighter side of life. Wonderful to see you. Most important question. I hope the family in you are safe and healthy and you've got both your jabs. Uh, lovely to see you, Rishke. Yes, I've got both my jabs and um, I'm feeling pretty secure. And I urge everyone else to get their jabs because it's the only way out of this wretched pandemic that is uh, making life hell for us all. Now, I'm just going to get down to business straight away. There's no point asking you, why did you write this book? Why didn't you write it earlier? I'm just glad it came. I'm going to start at uh, All India Radio in Delhi. And my God, we're kindred souls. You were once <laughs> a radio presenter, a dejected yes. radio presenter eventually. And you interviewed the Beatles, perhaps the only person in this country to have done that. And you slipped past a very wary George Martin. Would you recount that, please? <laughs> you know, that's the opening chapter of my book. And I, and I did that because uh, while I could have started off with, you know, the sexy chapters that, that promised lots of uh, love and romance and relationships, etc., I realized people wouldn't know who I was. So I started off with this chapter where I was a reporter with All India Radio, working with All India Radio because of my parents' situation. I had to work my way through college. And the Beatles came into town. And I said to myself, I'm going to get to them. So I went to the, my bosses and I said, Please let me interview the Beatles. They laughed at me. They said, hello, how can you interview the Beatles? The whole day press corps trying to get in. Give me the tape recorder. Let me see. So they gave me the tape, tape recorder and the badge. And I got into the hotel. And um, everyone was looking for the Beatles. I knew I had to look for Brian Epstein, their manager, because he was the key to the whole thing. And after three hours of waiting, I saw him come down the elevator into the lobby. And I followed him as he walked to the exit to catch his car. And I said, uh, Mr. Epstein, uh, the government of India have scheduled an interview with the Beatles. I said, how dare they? The boys will not give an interview to anybody. And I said, no, sir, you see, this is a government matter. And I kept repeating the word government because they had just come back from Manila where they had gotten into trouble with the government because they hadn't performed at Marcos's, uh, the dictator's children's birthday party. And they'd actually had to leave Manila under a big cloud. They were manhandled at the airport. So I knew this government angle might be their vulnerability. And I said, sir, I'm a big fan of the Beatles. Please let me interview the Beatles. Otherwise, it'll become a government matter. They've already scheduled it for 10 o'clock tonight. And eventually, he agreed to let me uh, interview them. So, actually, to, to cut a long story short, because there was a detour along the way, but I got to see the Beatles. Now, for me, being in the same room as the Beatles wasn't just being in the same room as my music idols. They were the greatest musicians in history as far as I was concerned. They represented the whole 1960s, the most exciting decade of the 20th century, a time of social turmoil, a time of social change, a time when people were demonstrating for peace on the, on the streets, uh, hippies were wearing psychedelic clothes, the counterculture movement was in full bloom, the pill had been invented, people had sexual freedom. There were all kinds of rebellions against the sort of rigid order of the previous generations. And we were part of it in India, at least those people that I hung out with in the urban young, we were part of this. And to be in the room with the Beatles who represented this was extraordinary. Now, what happened in that interview with the Beatles, what I said to them, what they said to me, which is an incredible interview, that I'll leave for people to read in the book. But the fact is that interview became the turning point of my life because All India Radio treated it so badly that I decided I was not going to work with these people anymore. And it forced me to rethink my life, think what my options were, what I was going to do with my life, and eventually I set out to Bombay to be a director. And the story begins from there with a few, few flashbacks about my life in Delhi 
and the circumstances in which I grew up. My bad. That's the George, opening chapter. Yeah, my bad. The the producer of the Beatles is George Martin. The manager is Brian Epstein. I stand corrected. And uh, that's right. Just to give you a sneak peek, so that the rest of the story you actually do pick up stories. I must tell. It's available at all on ground as well as online stores. Kabir actually saw George Harrison play the sitar. Right. <laughs> cool is that? And that's yeah, where the was, whole confluence of cultures came about. That's really remarkable. Look, George that, Harrison, yeah. let me just say, George Harrison was actually trying out a few sitars that he intended to buy, a sitar he intended to buy in Delhi. And it was his love of Indian music that influenced the Beatles to put all the Indian sounds in their thing. In fact, in, he even used the Swarmandal in later, in later compositions of theirs. He was a big influence on the Beatles, and I think he was responsible for them coming back to India for that historic tour when they went to the ashram of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, which turned out to be the most creative period in their lives, and um, actually influenced the Beatles in a very deep way. So, all that and more in my book. True that. Heady days in St. Stephen's College, you were the star of the theater, you know, doing productions at Miranda House. And you had a very illustrious set of people who, uh, who surrounded you. And even before that, you had friends in higher places in primary school, Rajiv Gandhi and <laughs> Sanjay Gandhi. Unfortunately, both of them are not with us anymore. Yes. Tell me what Rajiv Gandhi said to you when he became Prime Minister and you sought an audience with him and met him just a couple of weeks after he assumed office. <laughs> That's a lovely story. You know, Rajiv, Sanjay and I were studying at the same Montessori school in Delhi near Connaught Place. And the fact is that um, we just became good friends. And they'd call me home and we'd go to their place and we'd play on their trains and make little cars and mechano sets and all that. There's no way I could even imagine that they would shape India's destiny so decisively in the decades ahead. Indira Gandhi at the time was just her father, Jawaharlal Nehru's um, official hostess. She was just Auntie Hindu to us. So I watched, you know, Indira Gandhi come to power. I watched her in the impose the emergency. I watched the rise of Sanjay Gandhi. I saw, I was very saddened by the tragic death of Sanjay. And when Rajiv became prime minister, it was almost unbelievable that this easygoing fellow that I knew who was like to laugh and joke about everything. And when I um, went to see him after he became prime minister, he ushered me in past all these waiting ministers, closed the door firmly behind them, opened his arms to show the expanse of the prime minister's office. And he said, <laughs> So Rajiv, you're prime minister, now you better get serious. He said, don't you get all serious on me. Everybody asked me to be serious all day. Don't you start. You're my friend. And that's, that was my meeting with him. We talked to many other things, but and um, a lot more is in my book. Again, you have to pick up the book for the entire story, but it's my job to give you a sneak peek. Sanjay Absolutely. Gandhi was building a car factory. And uh, that was eventually, you know, what transitioned into becoming Maruti Suzuki, the first uh, multinational car of India. And Kabir took a ride in that car. <laughs> so more. I, uh, I, took, I, took a, I took a ride actually in one of his prototypes that he'd made. Ah, okay. Which was actually quite... Um, a precursor. It was, more a, yeah. it was more a glorified golf cart. I mean, it really was, wasn't... <laughs> it functioned, it had it were at small wheels and you could sort of drive it around. And he also knew this was not the car that he wanted, but he was desperately keen to make a people's car for India. And in the end, he succeeded by making this collaboration with, with Suzuki. So Maruti Suzuki became the most successful car manufacturer in India. So we have to thank Sanjay Gandhi for A, giving us a people's car and B, for being instrumental in opening up the Indian market to foreign cars. Because those days, there were just four cars on the Indian market. The Standard Herald, the Ambassador, the Fiat, and uh, and one other, Jeep or something, I think. Four cars manufactured in India, and that's the main things you could get. So 
we have to be very thankful for to Sanjay for that. So for all of Sanjay and Rajiv's deeds and alleged misdeeds, I did mourn them when they passed away because they were childhood friends, and I was sorry that they passed away in such tragic circumstances. Delhi boy Kabir Bedi moves to Mumbai. You join Benson's, the advertising agency, and you're head of the radio and TV department. And lesser-known fact, which is there in the book, Jagjit Singh is used as a jingle composer to a commercial <laughs> that wins an Asian award. But really, this is the time that you actually started off in the theatre because Gerson Dukuna, Alec Padamsi, who you owe a lot to, and you say that with gratitude, cast you in Tughlaq, and your backside became very famous in the <laughs> Mumbai theatre circuit. Complete that story, please. Well. Uh, that's another lovely incident in my book where when I came to Bombay, I started working with, with, with Lintas and it so happened that Alec Padamsi was my boss and he discovered that I was an actor, gave me a small role in a play he did, I loved what I did and cast me in the lead role of Tughlaq, which is Girish Karnad's first play in English. And it was a spectacular production, um, brilliantly directed, great play. But what took everyone's breath away was the opening scene. Because when the curtains parted, you saw me standing with my arms out back to the audience, looking as though I was completely naked in the top light, darkness, naked Kabir Bedi. Everyone goes, oh my God. And it was, it made me the talking point of the town. Truth is, I did have a langot on that covered the front of me, but you couldn't see it in those lights. And the illusion of nudeness was there. And then royal courtiers come on. They dress the king and Tughlaq turns and addresses the audience as though the emperor is addressing a crowds of thousands. So that was a spectacular opening and it got me known in Mumbai society, plus the success of the play, which in turn led to uh, film offers. And that began my career in Bollywood. So that's another small incident in my book, which I recount with great joy. Meeting uh, Prothima and being wooed over by her and then being cheated upon. But the good news is that you say very honestly that you were no saint yourself. You had a girlfriend in Delhi and were having an affair with a married American lady in Mumbai. What do you what do you say? The travails of youth or, <laughs> you know, things that happen in youth. But this was really love, wasn't it? I mean, first from her side, because, you know, you quote her autobiography too. And then eventually from your side and, you know, you were willing to forgive each other many, many transgressions. You know, Rishke, it's true. I mean, when I first met Prathama, I, I didn't want to date her for various reasons. One is I was the head of filmmaking in uh, a major advertising agency. She was a model. I didn't want models as my girlfriend because there'd be the pressure to put them in my commercials. And nor did I want to be seen as taking advantage of them. Plus, I, I had a girlfriend in Delhi. Plus, I was having an affair with a married American woman. Indefensible in hindsight, I, I admit. But at the time when I began my relationship with, with Prathima seriously and we started living together, I ended that and we began as a happily married couple. Now, what it takes to go from that state to a state where we actually end up with an open marriage, that you have to read in my book because there, there's too many incidents along the way and too many dramas and emotional upheavals, all of which I share with you very candidly to create that situation. And what happens in that situation to a couple and how they deal with it, that's what you learn in my book. And of course, marriage and the and the Juhu swish set. I mean, you, mm. you grow up listening to these wonderful stories of the Khan brothers, Sanjay, Feroz, you know, and them partying with Mahesh Bhatt and Vinod Khanna. And you saw it all. I mean, this was the time when you we moved were. from Malabar Hill <laughs> to Beach House. And yes, uh, yes. wonderful heady days. <laughs> we were part of the sort of Juhu gang. The Khan brothers, uh, all of them, Feroz, Sanjay, Akbar and Samir, were a dashing, wonderful, handsome, charismatic bunch. They weren't quite part of our 
more laid-back uh, Juhu gang of uh, creative filmies. That was more Mahesh Bhatt and uh, Satsidev Dube and um, Parveen Babi and Danny Denzalpa and Parikshit Sani and Neelam Johar, who was the daughter of Ayaz Johar, and a few fr- and friends like that, like the Anand brothers. They were sort of all what made Jalal Aga, the kind of people that made the really chilled-out Juhu gang. And we really celebrated the 60s in the spirit of the 60s, in the entire hippie tradition. And we were the trailblazers of a whole new kind of lifestyle, urban lifestyle here. And we reveled in our, in our rebelliousness and we reveled in our difference. And it was a very exciting, exciting time. Mahesh Bhatt actually cast me as the hero in his first film, Manzari Aur which then got banned by the censor board. And then lots of dramas associated with that. And there was a time when Satyadev Dube and um, Johnny Bakshi, the producer of Manzile, got in a big argument about dialogues. And Johnny threatened to knock out Satyadev Dube's teeth. And Satyadev Dube then removed his false teeth and said, Ao, maro, kitna nikalove, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. By the wit, in stories, I must tell the emotional life of an actor. Yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful days. Sandokan. You were very kind to gift me a DVD when it released in India. And we have two daughters. One is eight, the other is two. The eight-year-old knows you only as Sandokan, not Kadeem wow. Bedi. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I'm How going wonderful. to interview Sandokan. And it, it's wonderful. And, you know, you, you have to take that as a compliment because here you were becoming a rage in Italy and Europe and partying with Gina Lola Brigida, who didn't like your girlfriend at the time, Parveen Babi, <laughs> and meeting Audrey Hepburn. And meeting Audrey Hepburn, who had given up Hollywood at the time. Uh, talk about those amazing days. You know, Rishike, it's uh, quite amazing to think back at the kind of adulation I got across Italy and Europe. Uh, my Sandokan series became a huge success. And the kind of fan mania that I associated with the Beatles, who I interviewed in Delhi, was what was being given to me in Europe. And it was, it was something that when Parveen and I went to Italy for the release of Sandokan, we found ourselves on the cover of every magazine, on every television show, every radio show. It was like a media blitz and it was like stardom that actors dream about. And it was happening to me. It was sort of almost unbelievable. So in the middle of this, we got an invitation from Gina and Laura Brigida to have dinner with her. And at that time, there were two stars that were the biggest Italian stars in the world, Sophia Loren and Gina and Laura Brigida. So to be invited by Gina was like huge. So with great delight, we both accepted. We went to her home. The plan was she would introduce us and have drinks with her friends. Then she would take us to a restaurant in the middle of Rome. From the moment that I entered her home, beautiful home and the historic Appian Way of Rome, filled with sculptures and paintings and wonderful people, Gina was courteous to me, uh, friendly to me, but refused to talk to Parveen. She introduced me to everybody, pretended Parveen wasn't there. So... I was naturally taken aback. Parveen was, was upset. I realized that. I tried to shield Parveen as best as I could while everyone was showering me with his compliments about Sandokan, etc. Then we move on to this dinner. And at dinner, there were just four people. There was uh, Gina Nora Brigida, Cecil DeMello, the manager of Air India in, in Rome, uh, me and Parveen. And we sit down to dinner and um, Gina says, let's dance. So I take her onto the floor. And part of me is thinking, my God, I'm dancing with Gina Lola Brigida, man. You know, this is, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. This is an international star. And here she's dancing with me. And I'm, it's a kind of more formal foxtrot kind of dance. And she said, looked over at Parveen, said, she's very beautiful. I said, yes, she's very beautiful. She's a wonderful lady, wonderful girl. And then we come back 
to sit down and Parveen says, let's dance. And then Parveen goes on the floor and I realize how angry she is and I try and sort of soothe her and she leans over to me and says, I'm leaving. I said, you're leaving the dance floor? She said, no, I'm leaving the restaurant. I said, you can't leave the restaurant. We had dinner, we were guests of Gina Laura Brigida, for God's sake, can't walk out on her. She said, I'm leaving. I said, well, if you leave, then I have to leave. She said, that's your problem. You do what you think you, is right. I'm leaving. I said, listen, I tried to persuade her. I said, Gina's just jealous of you. No, nothing washed. So eventually she came back to the table, picked up her bag, and I leaned over to Gina. I said, Gina, I'm terribly sorry. We have to go. We have to leave. I hope you know why. And Gina said, no, no, this is not right. Dinner is still coming. What are you doing? I said, no, no, Gina, I'm terribly sorry, but I have to leave. Uh, please forgive me. And I walked out of that dinner because I had this dilemma of either honoring the international star who'd invited me to dinner or supporting the woman that I loved. And the fact was Gina had insulted Parveen because what I forgot to mention was when we, before Parveen said, let's dance, Gina had said something very offensive to her. She said to her, and you, my dear, what are you doing here? Following the star? And Gina said, no, I'm with my man. Because I have a man. Parveen said. <laughs> Parveen said. So, oh, she's very quick. She's very smart. That's when Parveen asked me to, to dance and said she was leaving. So, the woman I loved had been insulted and I had to stay with her. So, that was the end of my glorious dinner with Gina Laura Brigida. Just one more incident from my book. There are intricate details of uh, Kabir's deep feelings for Parveen Babi, which uh, you can pick up the autobiography and uh, go through in great detail. Suffice it to say that I do have one large question on Parveen, her rapid descent and how Parveen Babi left you, contrary to people thinking that you left her. And this was 20 days before the second Sandokan movie in which she was cast. It obviously caused you a lot of embarrassment. And then you meet her at Holiday Inn by the poolside here in Juhu and uh, it wasn't very pleasant. And then finally, Danny and you and Mahesh but Danny Zinzongpa and you are at her funeral someone you loved very dearly so your thoughts uh, on this this remarkable lady Parveen was a remarkable lady she was a woman of great sensitivity great intelligence great ability and all her wonderful qualities there was the onset of her mental problems setting in and getting worse by the day and to live through a relationship where someone is suffering like that, someone is afflicted like that, and reacting in those paranoid ways to everything, and at the same time resisting any treatments because she was paranoid about meeting doctors as well, talk to doctors. That I have explored carefully in my book with great sensitivity, in great depth. And the fact of the matter is that at the end of the thing process, she came back to, to India, uh, leaving me. Why she left me? What are the circumstances in which she left me? All those I have I've explored and talked about in my book with great honesty. And I feel that it's important for people to understand uh, why things happen. I summed up that in the end of our relationship with the words, once we had wanted to love forever, but the winds were stronger than our wings. And just the larger things that were happening in our lives pulled us in different directions. And given her, her state of mind, it was tragic that it happened because I really wanted to have her healed and I think that closed the door to it. Then she came back to India and became an even bigger star because with the success of uh, Amar Akbar Anthony, which released just after we had moved abroad, thinking in my mind permanently. So she made her decisions based on what was best for her. And in the short term, it seemed to work. But in the long term, I think it, it made things a lot worse. My final meeting with her a few years before she passed away, I believe for readers to, to read in the book, because that again was had its 
poignant, tragic moments. And the funeral was, ironically, with three people that had, had been the most important loves of our life. There was Danny Dinzongpa, there was Mahesh Bhatt, and there was me. And we were there. She was carried to the dimly lit grave after being found in a room, alone, gangrene in her leg. It was a terrible end to a star who'd been the fantasy of millions. And I felt deeply, deeply sorry for all she'd suffered in life and all she had experienced. Uh, but I must say that the time that I spent with her was also filled with enormous light and joy and love, all of which I have shared in my book. Well, talk about emotional catastrophes. You had your share of physical catastrophes. You almost died when the ship you were shooting in, a pirate film, capsized. <laughs> How did you make your way out of that one? Sounds like the Titanic sinking. Yes. And I, after Sandokan, I shot another film for the Italians called Il Corsaro Nero, which is the Black Pirate. And the Black Pirate was a European pirate who goes to take revenge for the death of his brother from the governor of Maracaibo, which is in South America, which is in the West Indies. And we shot this film in Colombia. Now, this wonderful galleon that we sailed was not really a galleon because we couldn't afford to make a real galleon that cost millions and millions of dollars. So... On the superstructure of a, a ship, this galleon was sort of constructed. And what happened was that this had to be towed by a tugboat. And the tugboat took this galleon and towed it onto an underwater wall that the people of Cartagena had built to sink real pirate ships. So the fake pirate ship of ours was sunk by this real wall built to sink real pirate ships. And the fact of the matter is, this, this ship tilted over and we kind of climbed onto its side. SOS had gone out to the Coast Guard. And miraculously, the very wall that sunk us held us up, like on a, almost like on a knife edge, the boat was balancing. And we saw how precarious this was because when the Coast Guard finally got to us and took us away, we saw the ship roll over with a big groan into the water. And the Coast Guard told us that had any of us been on board, all of us would have been sucked down and killed and drowned by the vortex created by a sinking ship. And Parveen was at that time in Cartagena, and she saw the ship sinking from the shore. So even though she was going through a very difficult period just before then, seeing that changed her attitude completely. And we had the most wonderful days before she left Cartagena and returned to India. And what happened after that, it's all in my book. Kabir Bedi's stories, I must tell, the emotional life of an actor, his autobiography is uh, on all on ground as well as online stores. You want to follow him on social media. It's I Kabir Bedi, I Kabir Bedi, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And there's also a website, kabirbedi.com. Bollywood aficionados fret not. It's not only about his relationships and his work in the West. He talks about his biggest movie, which is Khun Bari Mang. And why I'm, I'm laughing and smirking is when your friend Rakesh Roshan called you the first time around, you had a tough time believing that you, you were being called for this role. Right, Saying, right. Are you sure you want to cast me? And then Rakesh says something to you. Uh, complete that. <laughs> well, I was shooting with Tom Selleck for a thing called Magnum PI in Hawaii. And I was sitting in my hotel room watching this wonderful gold glitter of the sun on the, on the sea, undulating sea. And the phone rings. No, no mobiles those days. So I picked up the hotel phone and it's Rakesh Roshan. I said, uh, Gudu, why are you calling me here? He said, because I've got a film I want you to cast you in. I said, are all the Bollywood actors on strike? He said, no, no, no. The thing is, in my film, the hero becomes a villain. And therefore, no heroes are willing to do it. 
If I put a villain in the role, there's no surprise at the end. You're the only one that can look like a hero and turn out to be a villain convincingly at both ends. So I want you to do this film. And I said, uh, great, who's the heroine? He said, Rekha. That was it. Between him asking me and telling me that Rekha was in it, decided that for me. Because Rekha had just done, won the National Award for Umrao Jan, and she was um, already a, uh, an iconic actress. And I was in the middle of my Hollywood years, but I came back from there to do Khun Bariman. And it turned out to be my, my most successful Bollywood film. And I was thrilled to have been called and paired with Rekha, with the director of The Eminence of uh, Rakesh Roshan. He is called Guddu for short, and Rithik is known as Dugu for short. So <laughs> I knew Rithik when he was a a young assistant director to his father at the time of Khun Barimang, and what a great actor he's become since then. And he's emerged as a major, major superstar. And I always have great respect for all he has become in life through his hard work and through his talent. Kabir, your second wife, Ischel, known as Susan at the time, she was American. Not much is known about her here in India, but it's wonderful that, you know, you have a son with her, Adam. Adam and you are so close. Adam is so close to Pooja and Adam was also very close to Siddharth, your late son. Was it the fact that she was the first non-star that you dated that really appealed to you? You're very perceptive there, Rishikim. Really, really perceptive because after two high-voltage emotional relationships with two very turbulent women, Prathima and Parveen, I was sort of done with divas. I, I, I wanted somebody grounded, more normal, somebody I could relate to more and, and bring more stability to my life. And I think that's what Ishel did. And we had a beautiful son out of that relationship. Things didn't work out, work out in the end for, for reasons I don't want to go into. But at the same time, we, we had a time, a wonderful time in my early Hollywood years which was the time when I acted in Ashanti opposite Michael Caine, at the time when I did the James Bond film, Octopussy, the first Indian actor to be cast in a Bond film, and many other major Hollywood um, series. So even though my marriage with Michelle didn't work out, I do thank her for the stability she brought to my life. And she had a very spiritual side to her, and very psychically oriented. Even today, she's like an expert on essential oils and has a great line of um, essential oils that she, she, she markets. And she has enormous, um, what do I say, good things about her, a number of uh, very positive things about her. But I didn't want to explore in great depth why we separated, because that was not the story, because that came as part of the, the story I was telling on Parveen Babi. And to get into that would have been too much of a distraction from the main story. There's a wonderful picture, Kabir, uh, of Christmas in your house. Pooja has taken that picture where extended, uh, entire extended family came together. Ishchel, her partner, Pooja, her partner, Protima, and Nikki, happy times. And, you know, you do mention in the book that my friend Kwasar, uh, you were the mm. person who introduced uh, his mother, the wonderful Dolly, to Alec Padamsi. And, right. You know, I was reminded immediately of Alec's extended family, God bless his soul. You know, when Pearl right. and Ryle and Dolly and the children all get together. Those right. are very, very happy times. And I'm so glad that you put the picture there. And when you think back on it that, was. that that's, that's what life is all about, isn't it? These lovely memories. Well, it's wonderful to, to be able to have that. You get married, if you get divorced. But at the end of it, if you remain friends, uh, it says something about both people. And for me to have that Christmas dinner along with Nikki, my wife at the time, who I married during the course of my playing Othello in, in Bombay. Nikki, together with my two ex-wives, Prathama and Ishel, and all whining and dining and laughing and being, having good cheer around a Christmas tree. That says something 
about people and relationships. It's not very common. It's quite rare to remain, have that kind of friendship with ex-wives. And I think it's, I regard it as one of my, as one of my accomplishments in life. Sorry to take you briefly to a dark place. Siddharth's suicide, your mm-hmm. son, given that it happened in your house in Santa Monica, you do talk of the prolonged illness that the boy suffered. And, you know, one's heart reaches out to, to him, to the entire family, but it truly broke you, uh, didn't it? And to get back from there must have mm-hmm. been a mountain. Yes, Ishika, it was, um, it was a, a deeply traumatic experience for me because there's a whole chapter in my book on that where he talked to me of, of suicide and it shattered me because I thought, my God, he's seeking of suicide. How do you prevent a son from committing suicide? And I know I was sort of part of that journey of trying to heal him and everything I, I did, and all the emotional scenes we went through in trying to prevent that happening. That's, that was A, very painful for me to relive and recount as it happened because it was a deeply emotional experience. And you know, when a son passes away or a child passes away, it's one of the greatest losses any parent could ever have. But when that child is not just a child, he's a, my, my son was a young man, he was 25 years old, he was a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University, he was on the verge of an incredible career at the dawn of the internet age, having graduated from the Mecca of Infotech. When such a child passes away, it makes the, the loss and the tragedy even deeper. And what happens in the aftermath of that? The guilt that everyone feels. I could have done this. I should have done this. I could have prevented this. Not just me. Everyone that knew him somehow felt they could have done something to prevent this. This happens whenever anyone passes away. And you know, now in this pandemic, everyone is experiencing a sense of loss and mourning. It's almost become a new normal. And people have their reactions to the death of people that are close to them or people that they love or admire. And inevitably, Everyone feels a sense of guilt. They feel they could have somehow prevented it if they did something. And it's no different with me. I have now come to, to terms with, with what happened. The pain of such a great loss recedes with time, but the wound remains, the scars remain. And you have to learn to live with that because in the, in the ultimate analysis, life must go on. The, the dead would not forgive the living if they forgot to live. And it's important that we see the importance of life going on while not forgetting, while not forgetting. You never forget, and you shouldn't forget. And I think this is this is the hardest chapter for me to write. And in fact, it's one of the chapters that touches people the most when they read my book, because it's the direct experience of a father trying to prevent his son from committing suicide. Please go pick up stories. I must tell the emotional life of an actor. Kabir Bedi really bears his heart and soul. Uh, some names are changed, which I think he's been very gracious enough to do. Let's come to the present. You must be so proud of uh, your granddaughter, Alia, now a liar, and her choice of new age cinema. And of course, your lovely wife, Parveen, and you know uh, how she's producing for OTT and things. I am so proud of both of them, Alaya for what she's achieved and the dedication and hard work that she's put into becoming a highly qualified and competent actress. And I hope she goes on to becoming one of the best actresses of our generation. With Parveen, it's like after years of trying to find the perfect partner, I found this wonderful girl called Parveen Desange, who has given me so much and for whom and, and it made me so proud by being one of the producers of Bad Boy Billionaires on OTT. But more than that, I would have taken probably three times as long to write my book if it wasn't for Parveen protecting me from all the distractions that normally come into the life of a celebrity. 
and for giving me all the support and critiquing my work and giving me insights. I owe so much to her and I'm so thankful to her. And even though this is my fourth marriage, maybe it took me a while getting to my perfect partner, but in the end, I did. So my story essentially is something that ends in a, in a triumphant way because I was knighted by the Italians by being made cavaliere. I found the woman that I was seeking, a woman who's given me so much love and joy. And I am so proud of my granddaughter, Alaya, for having won the debut actress filmfare award on her first outing. And I hope it's the first of her many awards in life. And she has all my blessings. Much as I love your voice and your broadcasting skills, I've heard Nikki on the radio in the UK online, and she's absolutely <clears throat> fabulous. Nikki and you are quite the item. Was the fact that she wanted to continue living in the UK and you wanted to come back to India and the fact that she had such a tough time here after the Ashok Rao Kavi incident on her TV show, was that one of the, the big reasons why that relationship didn't survive the test of time? Well, Nikki again was uh, an incredibly vibrant presence in my life. I was playing Othello on the stage for, this, for Alec Padamsi. Nikki played Desdemona and the passion that we shared on stage crossed over into our real life. We, we fell in love, we got married, and then she had this wonderful show called Nikki Tonight on Star Television, which unfortunately came to a sudden end because somebody on the show uh, said terrible things about Mahatma Gandhi, and, um, and, and the government basically reacted and Star TV pulled the show. So she came to Los Angeles where I was shooting, and from there we had a few wonderful years, and then came back to England because of a few disasters I had in, in Hollywood, including a personal bankruptcy, which is another story in my many stories. But Nikki basically wanted to be in England, and I basically wanted to come back to India. And that was the one thing that, that was irreconcilable. I think she made the right decision wanting to stay in England because she's become a truly star radio broadcaster. Her show on the BBC Arts Hour is, is a... Is a masterclass in the art of interviewing and the art of uh, radio broadcasting. She's excelled herself, and I'm so proud of uh, what she has achieved. So her decision to stay on England was right. My decision to come back to India was also right, because this is where I want to be. These are my people. These are the people I care most about. This is a society in which, with which I wish to be surrounded, whose problems I want to think about. And if you notice, my book has largely been written with the audience of India and Italy in mind. And in fact, my book is dedicated to young techies like my son Siddharth, because that is the future. And this is the generation that needs to know what it was like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. What was that history? What happened in those times? Who were these people? What was the experience of, 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 of having an international career on three continents? To live that, to experience that, what are the emotions you go through? So that's why my book is called The Emotional Life of an Actor, because seen through the emotional prism of people and places that I've known and loved. Your parents, your mom, the Buddhist monk, your dad, the philosopher in Milan, and their profound effect on your life, uh, Kabir. Yes, that's another chapter in my book. Gosh, you certainly explored my book in great depth. I wish I could... I told you, I just loved it. I just loved <laughs> it. And, you know, it just, it's so <laughs> overwhelming, so beautiful. You know. At one level, I wish I could share it all with you right now. At another level, I don't want to give the whole book away. Yeah, just sna snapshots. But the fact, yeah. the fact of the matter is that everyone's parents are important to them. But I think my parents would have been remarkable even if they were not my parents to me because they were just such remarkable people. Here you have a British girl who falls in love with an Indian man in Oxford, comes back to India, joins the freedom struggle, becomes Gandhian Satyagrahi. He is a communist 
revolutionary. Both of them, through incredible things that happen, go through life-changing experiences that take them to, to religion. So they go from revolution to religion. And my mother goes on to becoming a Buddhist nun. My father becomes a New Age teacher in, in Italy, even though he comes from the Sikh tradition. We are all descendants of Guru Nanak. And the relationship between the two of them is the most remarkable of all. How do people divided by beliefs, divided even by continents, remain soulmates to the end of their lives? That too is a very important chapter of my book. My last couple of questions. One is, uh, I'd be damned. There was also a short-lived romance with the lovely Persis Kambata. I didn't know that. She was in Star Trek. Uh, she was what we call the bald and the beautiful. Unfortunately, we lost her early at age 50. Your memory is of the incredible Persis. Persis was a very beautiful person, not just to look at, but inside her. She had a beautiful kind of childish innocence uh, to her. We got together when I first went to, arrived in Hollywood, and I had this home in Beverly Hills. And she was, at that time, she'd just been picked for playing the role of Captain Ilya in Star Trek. So she was bald as a Buddhist monk. And strangely enough, she had such wonderful features, it actually accentuated her beauty. It didn't take away. And we got together, and then we had a few months together. And then I went off to shoot a film called Ashanti with Michael Caine and Omar Sharif in Israel. And by the time I came back, she was still in the middle of shooting. But some things happened, and I just realized that wonderful as she is, and wonderful as some moments had been in our relationship, we were really very different people. So rather than prolong it, we just came to an understanding that we have to go our own separate ways. But I was always very fond of her, and I would see her from time to time over the years. And it just so happened that I was in Mumbai when she actually passed away, and so was able to attend her funeral at the fire temple in uh, Mumbai and um, say my farewell to her before she went on her final journey. A beautiful soul. She was a beautiful soul. My last question has to do with diversity and inclusion. Uh, you see, in, in this day and age, uh, you know, when I speak to people like PC Priyanka Chopra and Nimrat Kaur, people who really made their mark in the West, we talk about diversity and inclusion because it's part of Hollywood culture now. There's, mm -hmm. you know, the mandatory African-American, the mandatory Latino, the mandatory Oriental, and now the mandatory Asian in most <laughs> projects. Yes, but yes. when you started off, Kabir, <clears throat> there was none of that. There was absolutely none of that. Now, you've taken a few financial knocks. You talk about Hollywood not accepting you, but you still managed to work with Omar Sharif, Michael Caine. You do a Bond film. You work with the beautiful Hunter Tyler, Joan Collins. That must account for a lot. Your trials, your tribulations, your struggles in, in Hollywood, both in cinema as well as the television format. You know, the biggest problem I faced when I went to Hollywood was that they just weren't writing roles for Asians. The other thing was Hollywood didn't care about anything outside Hollywood. They didn't care what happened in New York, let alone what happened in New Europe. The fact that I was a star in Europe and I came to Hollywood didn't make a difference to them. They only concerned about who's a star among them. It's a very insular town. And then if you don't have roles written for you, what can you audition for? Because everyone has to audition. So I took the strategy that I was going to be the foreigner in Hollywood. So I told my agents, don't worry about me being Indian or Asian. I'm the foreigner. And Hollywood being Hollywood, anything that didn't sound American was foreign. So my first film, they actually cast me as a Tuareg prizeman, Michael Caine. I don't look like a Tuareg prizeman, but it was foreign. So it didn't matter. It was just another foreign role. I played a Moroccan prince in um, The Bold and the Beautiful for over a year, show watched by a billion people around the world every day. So 
it was an extraordinary experience being the foreigner in Hollywood. The Bond film, Octopussy, was the only place where I was actually cast as an Indian and, uh, and as a Sikh Indian, which I am. So that's the only correct piece of casting. Otherwise, I just kept playing these different foreigners and did a lot of series and did a lot of um, miniseries as well and managed to do enough work to be considered a serious working actor in Hollywood. I was never a major star in Hollywood, but I was certainly considered a serious actor. What saw me through that, through my reverses in Hollywood, were the films that Italy gave me and the honors that Italy gave me. And that, how I... You know, because one of the big problems of have, trying to have a career on three continents is where do you base yourself? If you're in Mumbai, Hollywood and Europe forgets you. If you're in Hollywood, Europe and Bombay forget you. So the constant effort to seem everywhere at once is much harder in those days. And it gives me great joy today that because diversity has become an issue, because of the kind of noise we made at the time saying roles aren't being written, that today roles are being written. And that it is easier for a Priyanka Chopra or a Nimrat to, to get roles. I'm not saying it's easy. This is a very difficult business. It's very difficult to get roles. It's very difficult to be even considered for roles. But it is certainly easier because diversity is an issue, because di diverse roles are being written. And again, I've explored that with, with in some depth in my book because it was a very important factor in my life that led to great success in Hollywood as well as some huge reverses in Hollywood, all of which I've shared. He writes in a very lucid, warm style, almost as, as though it was his fifth novella. But it is actually <laughs> his first. It's actually his first uh, unique autobiography, Stories I Must Tell, The Emotional Life of an Actor by Kabir Bedi. Westland Books uh, is the publisher. It's available on all on-ground. If, uh, you know, with the lockdown coming off slowly, on-ground stores are opening up. And also on all online stores, order your copy now. Like I said, there's not even a single dull moment. Uh, it's really a book that you will treasure reading. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's the same handle everywhere. I, Kabir Bedi. It's K-A-B-I-R and KabirBedi.com. You've been very generous with your time. I could go on and on. I love listening to your mellifluous voice and your words. Thank you, Rishikita. But, you know, like you said, uh, there's got to be some stuff for them to go out and buy the book. So it was nice for you to give us snapshots. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good day ahead. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you for your wonderful questions and look forward to chatting with you again. And I hope people go out and order the buy book and read it because there's lots in there.